you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there should be one. You can pull that out and uh, look in the table of contents for the book of John in the New Testament. And we have been working our way through John. If you're new with us, my name is uh, Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. And on most Sunday mornings, our habit is to uh, just open a book of the Bible that we've been working through and look at the next passage, take a paragraph or two and work our way through it. Uh, Last week, we looked at John 20, and we're going to do so um, again today because of the significance of this uh, text. We attempted together to summarize uh, the the chapter, and uh, if you're a note taker and are trying to record what the whole chapter is about, a way you could do that is uh, this sentence. Um, As promised, King Jesus, which we've sung about together this morning, King Jesus rose again in victory. He appeared to many, and he prepared his disciples for his ascension and their continuance of his gospel mission. That's what the chapter as a whole is about. Now, nobody is going to remember all of that, uh, but perhaps you could write it in your Bible. That would be a helpful thing. Last week, we looked together at specifically the evidence for the resurrection. And John, as he laid out his book, the Gospel of John, was very careful to show us in this chapter about the resurrection that there is an empty tomb. In verses 1 through 10, we look together at that empty tomb. And then in verses 11 through 29, the risen Lord. There wasn't simply a tomb in which the people should assume what happened, but rather Jesus himself showed up and multiple times revealed himself, his resurrected body, to his disciples. And then finally, in verses 30 and 31, John gave us the written record. So John wrote the gospel in order that we could believe. So friends, um, in essence, we could very confidently say that if you believe anything happened in the first century and you can have trust that what we know today is in fact what truly happened, then you can trust the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so thankful that you're here and uh, we're glad that you're considering the claims of Christ. Please study this evidence in John 20 for the resurrection and understand that we're a church who's not at all afraid of any questions that you might have or any skepticism even that you might have. We would love as uh, fellow human beings to sit down with you one-on-one and to consider what John 20 says. So if you have questions, please ask somebody who came with you or build a new relationship here after the gathering. Come up to one of the pastors and ask them to consider the significance of the resurrection, in particular in this evidence. We'd very much love to spend time with you. Now today we want to consider together not the, the evidence for the resurrection, but rather the significance of the resurrection. In other words, what does it mean that Jesus rose again? What's the impact? What's the significance of it? So thinking through that lens, would you now look at John 20 as Scott Wakefield comes to read for us? Thank you, brother. Thanks. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. 
Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw the two angels in white, sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, who was one of the twelve, called the twin, did not go with them, or was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the, in the, his hands the marks of the nails, and place my fingers into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Um, in, incidentally, if you're not in uh, one of our small groups, we call those gospel communities. They meet um, in homes. Scott and Lisa Wakefield are helping to lead a new group, so you could see them after the gathering and get more information. It would be a great group for you to join. Uh, thank you for reading, brother. Uh, following the same three headings that we considered last week, that there's an empty tomb and a risen Lord and a written record, I want to use those same three 
categories, if you would, to this morning together with you consider the significance of those three things. The significance that Jesus rose again and that there was an empty tomb, a risen Lord, and that we have the written record. Now, just to be um, honest, uh, this I'm going to back up a dump truck of information and pile it on you. Are you ready? A lot of you look really excited about that. Um, we want this morning to consider the most important thing that's ever happened. And this is the, the, the linchpin in the entire biblical story. And so there's so much in this one chapter. And I hope today to give a broad overview that then you can work out in conversations with one another in considering how this applies right now in your own life. Uh, let me pray and ask God to help us. Lord, we are uh, people who are tired. It's morning. It's been hot out this week, so our brains are cooked. And Father, we are um, in many ways often caught up in the cares of the world and don't think deeply about you. Would you please aid us today through your Spirit that we might be um, lifted up and understand higher thoughts of you than we may have considered in the last week? Would you aid us and give us the ability to be undistracted for the next uh, 40 minutes or so and to really lock in, dial in, consider together the tremendous news that Jesus is alive. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with that first, an empty tomb. What is the significance? What is the meaning? What are the implications of the fact that Jesus rose again? That there is today still an empty tomb where his body once was laid. Well, you'll notice down in verse 9 that John uses an interesting word. He said that Jesus must rise from the dead. He didn't say might. He didn't say could. He didn't say should. He didn't say would. He said must. Why is it that Jesus had to rise from the dead? Well, John goes out of his way here to choose that specific word in order to show us that the resurrection was an absolute necessity. This isn't a tangential part of the gospel. This is, in fact, absolutely essential. Everything hung on the fact that Jesus, who was hung, didn't remain dead. The whole story is dependent on a risen Savior. In fact, everything falls apart if Jesus stayed dead. To say that a different way, you and I nor anyone else should pay any attention at all to anything Jesus said or did if Jesus stayed dead. You see, the resurrection is what proves, validates, confirms Jesus' entire life and ministry. The resurrection is the validation, is the confirmation that Jesus is trustworthy, that the Father accepted Jesus as the substitute, that Satan's power is limited, and that Jesus' power is unlimited. This is all bound up in that word must. 
Who knew we'd be looking at little details this morning like a single word? But that is, in fact, what's so important in this story. Now, just to illustrate for you that this isn't just John, that John didn't somehow conceive more of the resurrection than was actually there, let me show you on the screens a couple of other passages that say the same thing in various words. Several decades after the resurrection of Jesus, a man named Paul gave all the rest of his life to spreading this message. He traveled around the world proclaiming this gospel. Beyond Jesus, he's the most infamous missionary the world has ever known. And he wrote about the resurrection and very much saw it as a must. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It'll be on the screens. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, that He appeared to Cephas, that was Peter's original name, then to the twelve. So Paul is recounting what John told us, what Scott read just a moment ago. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Not meaning what some of you will do during the sermon, but that people died. Uh, Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now watch what he says here. If Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. Friends, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, you should have slept in today. This is a waste of your time. You are a fool. If Christ isn't raised, faith is absolutely, totally meaningless. It does nothing. The resurrection is that important. So John saw that, and Paul saw that. But let's go back earlier than Paul to Peter. So Peter is that one who was running with John. John outran him. John looked in, but Peter ran in. Peter saw the empty tomb. Now what did Peter come to believe the significance of that empty tomb was? Well, just not decades, but just days After Jesus rose again, less than two months, Peter, who had denied Christ, who had given up on Jesus, stood in front of his own countrymen and gave the first Christian sermon. This is found in the book of Acts, Acts 2. It'll be on the screens as well. Here's what Peter said. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, he's going to quote Psalm 16. I told you I was going to give you a lot today, but hang with me. Peter, standing in Jerusalem, the same city Jesus rose again in, Jesus has left, gone back to the Father. He's gone, and Peter's now announcing what this means. 
Peter doesn't understand this to be some new novel idea, but rather what the Old Testament was always about. And so he reaches back into the Old Testament, Psalm 16, and he quotes it. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Who's he talking about? Jesus. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. End quote. Now he continues. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, okay, so David is who wrote Psalm 16, that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is still with us to this day. What's his point? He's saying, David could not possibly have been talking fully and finally about himself. He must have been writing about more than himself because David's still in the, in the, in the grave. Which, friends, is so helpful if you think even beyond the biblical witness. Should you follow Muhammad? Should you follow Gandhi? Should you follow Buddha? No. Why? They've all rotted. Just like David did. But David wrote of someone more significant than him. That's what he's saying. Verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father Father or the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out on you this that you are, yourselves are seeing and hearing. Friends, this sermon is what birthed the church. And this is what the church has been saying ever since. The resurrection of Jesus is penultimate. The fact that he didn't stay dead is the very basis for our faith. If Jesus didn't rise again, you are still in your sins. But Christian, if he did rise again, then your sins have been removed. Amen? The resurrection of Jesus was an absolute necessity because it is the verification that all that Jesus said and did is true. Now, second, let's consider this morning together that second bucket, if you will, that second category of truth that this passage gives us, the fact that there was a risen Lord. What's the significance of the fact that Jesus is alive, that he didn't just show an empty tomb? Well, verses 11 through 29 show us through Jesus appearing over and over and over again to his followers. These encounters with Mary, then with the disciples in general, then with Thomas in particular, are all crucial to help us understand what it means that Jesus is 
alive. And these verses will break out or disclose to us three remarkable truths. And so, if you could picture that outline with me, we're we're in our second category, and in that second category, there's three different truths presented to us about the resurrected Lord. What is the significance of the resurrected Lord? Well, friends, first, this risen Lord brings us into a relationship with God. Apart from Jesus rising again, no human being could know an intimate, personal, vibrant relationship with God. It wouldn't be possible. Now, the nature of this relationship is not our obedience, either to get us in or to keep us in. The nature of this relationship with God is our adoption into the family of God. Christian, your life would be different if you actually functionally believed that. That you're not loved by God because of what you've done or are doing or will do. You're loved by God because Jesus obeyed and He therefore made it possible for you to be adopted into the family of God. In verse 17, Jesus told Mary, I'm going to go back to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Brothers and sisters, do you hear that? Christian, the relationship Jesus has with the Father is now the relationship all of God's people have with the Father. So Jesus has enabled you to be seen as Jesus is seen. The great scandal of the gospel is that all of us who willfully rejected God's rule, who stuck our noses up at Him, who said we will not rely on you, trust you, love you, live for you, but rather for ourselves, that all of us who have done that because of Christ now been accepted back in, adopted into the family of God. We are thought of and treated by God the Father the way He treats His Son, Jesus. All that belongs to Jesus belongs to us. Did you hear me? Everything all the blessing and honor and rights and privileges and relationship that the Son of God belonged to all the other sons and daughters of God. This is what the resurrection teaches us. So, Christian, the next time somebody rejects you or excludes you, ponder this most wonderful reality. Since Jesus is resurrected... While you may be excluded from relationships here on earth, you will never be excluded from your relationship with God in heaven, ever. All the rejection and shunning the world can muster is nothing. For you are accepted by God. You are welcome. You are at His table. You are in His family. But we're not just accepted and adopted into God's family in the sense of that being just like every other family. 
So many of us know homes where there is contention, where there's difficulty, where there's harshness, where there's unforgiveness and bitterness, where there's angry words, where there's cold shoulders, where our status in in an acceptable way is dependent upon our behavior. And so when I say family or household, so many of us, that has been our experience. But that's not how things work in the household of God. You see, you've been adopted into a new family, a family where things are existing in a state of peace. Friends, the household of God is a peaceful one. Notice in verse 19 that Jesus' first words to his disciples are, peace be with you. Now, if that were in there just once, that would be significant, but it's repeated three times. Verse 21, peace be with you. Verse 26, peace be with you. When Jesus showed himself after his resurrection to his disciples, the very first thing he wanted them to hear was peace. I find that to be so incredibly wonderful. Think of what Jesus could have rightly said. These disciples had spent years with him under his direct tutelage, living day and night, following him around, being accepted into his inner circle, hearing him pray, having his both public and private ear. These disciples had been welcomed into the most intimate moments with Jesus Christ. He had told them repeatedly what was going to happen in order to prepare them. And yet, where where were they now? They were hiding in a locked room. They were cowards. They had run to self-protect. They were so afraid of their fellow countrymen that they might too be crucified that they hunkered down in fear. So Jesus could have rightly said all kinds of things to them, couldn't he? He could have said, I'm disappointed in you. He could have said, how could you have deserted me when I needed you the most? He could have said, I told you so. All those things would have been true. But he came with a message of peace. In the household of God, God's initiation of adopting us into the family isn't a rebuke, isn't condescension, isn't blame. Friends, the resurrection is the announcement of peace with God for all of God's people. And then peace among each other in the household of God. This is what the death and resurrection of Christ has brought us into. A household where there's peace. A household where the Father's attitude toward you and love for you is not dependent upon what you've done, but on what Christ has done. A place of peace. By his death and resurrection, Jesus 
brings sinners into a peace-filled relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, however chaotic your present circumstances might be, whatever turmoil or illness or temptation, whatever external enemies may haunt you at present, whatever past sins may be recurring in your mind, pressing in on you this morning. The truth, the objective fact outside of how you feel is that you are at peace with God. Is that Jesus has given you by his resurrection a place at the table of God where the Father is not shaking his finger saying, how could you? but rather I love you. This is the gospel. This is the significance of the resurrection. But what's the mechanism of how that works? In other words, there's so many engineers in our church. Most of the time I cannot relate to you well at all because my brain doesn't work like yours does. But what are the the moving parts of how a relationship with God works. What are the, the dealy whoppers that move, that go this way and that way, so that we can actually know God and relate to God and be accepted by God and be in relationship with God? How does this work itself out? Well, these verses, these same verses, 11 through 29, show us that the resurrection unites us to Christ. That the significance of the resurrection is that it brought about the possibility, not just the possibility, but the actuality of human beings being able to be united to Christ. And so the mechanism for our adoption and for our peace is that we have been infused, united with the resurrected Lord. Now, I warned you that there's a lot here. No way we'll get all of this and retain it in one Sunday. But I I hope you'll think and ponder and even listen to this again. Look at verse 17. This amazing truth comes in a rather odd package. Jesus said to her, who's the her? Well, this is Mary. Jesus has said, Mary, and Mary, who would never have expected to see Jesus alive again, says, teacher. And then she probably falls at his feet in worship and is hugging around his legs. And and here's what Jesus says in response. Don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is one of the weirdest verses in the entire Bible. If you actually think through the event, here Mary is bursting with emotion that she gets to see Jesus again. And so she does what any of us would have done. She falls in worship and hugs him. And Jesus 
seemingly rather coldly, says, Mary, get up off me. Can't touch this. What is that? He says, because I have not yet ascended. What is that? This took me weeks of trying to figure out what in the world's going on. Let me try to describe it to you, not in weeks, but in a couple moments. Jesus is saying to Mary, what, notice what he doesn't say. Go tell the brothers that I've risen from the dead. Wouldn't that be what we'd expect? That's not what he says. He says, go tell the brothers I'm ascending. Huh? Friends, the ascension of Jesus back to heaven where he came from was his enthronement. That's not a word we're familiar with. The ascension, the return of Jesus back to the Father was Jesus taking his rightful place as King of kings and Lord of lords. It was the completion of all that he came to do. See, throughout the book of John, John's been using this word hour. My hour's not yet here. My hour's not yet here. My hour's not yet here. My hour is here. What's he talking about? He's talking about that whole thing that Jesus came to do. Live the perfect life, die the sacrificial death, rise again as king, and take back his throne. Where's Jesus today? He's at the right hand of the Father in heaven. What does that mean? It it means he's seated in a place of all power, all authority, all honor able to execute anything and everything he wants to do. It means he's king. He's wearing the crown. Today, all Christians bow to him. But one day, everybody will bow to him. He is king of kings and lord of lords. This is why it's so important to understand the ascension. I don't think I've adequately represented often enough this piece of the Bible. And so let me just say to you, I'm sorry. I'm still learning. And I've come to see the last few weeks the importance not just of the death and not just of the resurrection, but of the ascension itself. Let me show you an example of this in Psalm 24. This will be on the screen. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. Who shall stand in his holy place? This is an Old Testament way of saying, what human being can ever be in the presence of God? Who's welcome at his table? Who can come to God in prayer? Who is welcome in the very presence of God in heaven? Who can have a relationship with God? The category makes sense? All right, verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Is that you? This is not a hard one. No, 
Friends, think about the last 24 hours of your life. There have been intentional or unintentional, known or unknown, ways in which you and I have not had clean hands. We have not had pure hearts. Some of us have even done good, right, godly things, but done them to be thought of particular ways. Friends, none of us on our own have clean hands or a pure heart. Therefore, none of us can ascend the hill of the Lord. We are so tainted by evil. Yes, even you. But because God is pure and holy, He must say to all of us, based on our own actions, the door is shut. You cannot come in. And yet here's where the ascension comes in. Look at verse 7 of that same chapter on the screens. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that who? The King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Do you see what's being said? Again, the Old Testament foretold what Jesus would do. Jesus is the King of glory. There is, in fact, one human being who has gone back up into the presence of God. There is one who has clean hands and a pure heart. There is one who has been embraced in a peace-filled, loving relationship with the Father forever. Who is he? He's Jesus. As John has told us dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the last nine months, Jesus is king. He is the king of glory. His ascension back into heaven is the gate through which every other human being who, who is united to him is now welcomed into the presence of God. If Jesus wasn't resurrected and if Jesus didn't ascend, then you and I are still outside the gates, not at the table, not enjoying peace with God. But Jesus has, in fact, ascended. And so through union with Christ, that all that means through being placed into Jesus as he died, rising again as Jesus rose, ascending as Jesus ascended, that all that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. This is the biggest piece of dynamite brain-exploding news that I have for you today. You, friend, now, not when you die, now, are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Enjoying all that Jesus is today. The rest of your life is simply about coming to live in light of what's already true. Not earning more and more and more from God, but living in what He's already given you.
Who can stand in God's holy place in heaven? Jesus. And because Jesus can, who else can? We can. Jesus is showing that Mary is not now in the physical presence of Jesus, but she is spiritually. You see, friends, Jesus' ascension is our ascension. All of this happens through our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus, as he ascended, then he sent the Spirit. The Spirit now lives in us, indwelling us. And it is the Spirit that made us unified with Christ. Can you give me like six or seven more minutes? Okay, we've talked about two things that have come about because Jesus is alive. Let's look at the third. The the significance of Jesus' resurrection is that we've been commissioned to continue his mission. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension did not complete all that Jesus would want to do in the world. There's still work to be done. Now, the work is different in that we're not actually doing the death and resurrection and ascension, but rather we're announcing it. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Yes, you. Yes, us. Not after everything's been worked out in our lives. Not when we've attained some status of complete biblical knowledge. Not when we've finally, fully conquered that sin we can't seem to get past. Not when every relationship we have is absolutely perfect. Not when our thoughts no longer drift away from God. Today, right in the state and status that you are at, Christian, you and I are being and have been commissioned with the gospel ministry. This is what it means to be saved. We continue doing the work that Jesus did because Jesus is now doing it through us, because we've been united to Christ. Do you see how all this stuff goes together? Brothers and sisters, members of Church on Mill, our mission, if we take the Gospel of John and summarize it, our mission is to trust and obey God the Father, like Jesus did. Our mission is to love God and people by sharing the Gospel, like Jesus did. And our mission is to do all of this in the power of the Holy Spirit, like Jesus did. So we we live obediently. We share prolifically. And we do so not in our strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Another weird thing in this passage is when Jesus goes like, went like this. Look at verse 22 and you'll see it. Jesus breathing on his disciples. What is that? 
Well, very likely what happened here is two things. One, Jesus said, I'm sending you on the mission. And then he symbolically, by breathing, foretold to them what would happen in just a few days. Acts 2, if you want to read more about that. In Acts 2, the Spirit, because Jesus ascended, then Jesus sent the Spirit not to be around people, but rather to reside within them, that they might live with His power, that Christ through the Spirit would live in us. And what's that Spirit for? Well, according to the biblical story, the Holy Spirit's mainly been given that we would be witnesses. There is so much, not in this church, but in Big C, universal church, wrong in our understanding of the Spirit. The Spirit hasn't been given that we might whack each other on the head and fall over or bark like dogs or talk in some crazy nonsense. The Spirit's been given that we might intelligently, compassionately, lovingly, tenaciously witness to the risen Christ. And we need that. We need Him. Because in and of ourselves, we're ashamed of the gospel. But by the Spirit, we can do this. That same power that enabled Christ is the same power that lives in us. But I think there's something else going on also in John 20 when Jesus did this. I think he's also doing what he's been doing the entire book of John. He's going back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, we find the creation of Adam. And God formed Adam, and then how did he get life? God breathed. Jesus is the the second or the last Adam, the new creation. And so very likely what John is saying is, When Jesus went, I wasn't planning on doing that. Jesus is saying, just like God gave physical life in the beginning, I am now giving new life. Isn't that incredible? Oh, God is breathing life into a new humanity even now. The resurrection of Jesus is ruling, he's reigning, he's giving life to a whole new humanity, a humanity that will go on forever. What does that mean for us as a church? Well, the you in this verse is plural. It's meaning us together. Brothers and sisters, our spiritual work until Jesus comes is to announce that new life has come in Christ. And we do so collectively as a church. All the stuff in the rest of the New Testament about the one another's, about membership in a local church, where did that come from? Well, in the John writings, it came from John 20. It came from John saying, we've been given a mission. So I put that in the language that we use around here. We do this as we affirm new members by recognizing God has saved them 
And we do this as we remove members who fail to live lives congruent with the king they claim to have trusted in. That's what John 20 says. Now that's hard work. But that's essential work. That's what the church is in the world to do, to proclaim the gospel, to receive those who believe and show it in baptism, to hold out the Lord's Supper that we might partake, reminding ourselves of the death of Christ, to help each other stay on this narrow path that's so hard to walk in. And then in those rare cases when someone says with their mouth, yeah, I trust Jesus, but their life shows nothing of Jesus in an ongoing way, then we're to remove them that they might not be deceived, but rather really trust in Christ. This is the work we're to do. That's what verse 23 says. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. If you feel ill-equipped to do that as a member of this body, then understand our elders are trying to give themselves to helping all of us feel more and more equipped in it. Now we're out of time, so I'm not going to be able to do the third thing, the significance of the written record. But let me just say this in closing. Non-Christian, the Gospel of John was written mainly for you. It was written to communicate to you. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended. And if you believe all of that, if you trust that that's true, if you'll yield the reins of your life to a far better king or queen, if you'll give yourself up off the throne and trust in Jesus, then you will be saved. You will have life. Won't you do that today? Let's pray.